You're listening to the teaching podcast of The Crossing Church. We exist so that the real you can have a daily encounter with the real Jesus in word and deed. For more information about our church, visit crossingparagold.com. Everybody, if you have a Bible, I want to invite you to go to Daniel chapter 6. I was thinking as you were leading worship, Logan, that one of my goals for sabbatical is to come back with hair as nice as yours. Your hair game is strong today, man. It's looking good. Thank you, everyone. Uh, man, thanks for leading us. Great job as always. Daniel 6 is where we are. If you're a guest today, welcome. My name is Jared. I'm one of the pastors here. And on behalf of the pastors and members, uh, we're glad to have you with us. And if you want more information about us as a church, you can go to our website, crossingparagold.com, or probably the best way to get information is to take that little connect card to the back of the seat there in front of you, fill out some information about yourself, your family if they're here with you, or you can fill out information about your family even if they're not here with you, if you would like. Um, but leave that in your seat, and we'll collect that and try to seek to serve you to the best of our ability. Um, Daniel 6 is where we are this morning, and if you're joining us in this series for the first time, the idea behind this series is that we are living in a new cultural moment. I'm not sure if you've noticed it or not, but the ground beneath our feet has moved and we have shifted um, from this kind of Christianized culture in America that was at least partly built on Christian principles to now living in a full-blown secular environment. What we mean by that is it is now easier than ever to not only live a secular life, but to completely write God out of your mind. And so this is a, a very important series in the life of our church, a very important season for us, where we've just been trying to answer the question is, what does it look like to not just survive, but to thrive in this secular Babylonian type culture that we are living in? And to help answer that question, we're going to wrap up our series uh, in the book of Daniel today, in Daniel chapter 6. Um, and uh, if you're like, hey, there's 12 chapters in Daniel. Why are we ending it in chapter 6? Well, if you've read the book, you know that, that chapters 1 through 6 are all about living in a Babylonian secular culture, but 7 through 12 are all about life after exile, after Babylon. It's really a lot of kind of end time stuff. And so for those of you who are looking forward to me pulling out the end time charts, I apologize. Uh, maybe we'll get to that at some point later. But for this week, we're going to wrap up Daniel and then... Next week, um, I'm going to talk all about my sabbatical. Those of you who are members in our church, uh, you got the email. You heard us talk about this last year, but I'm going on a sabbatical. Uh, I'll be away from the church for three months, starting April 5th. And so we're going to talk uh, next week about why do pastors take sabbaticals? What does that mean for me and my family? What does it mean for us as a church? What does it look like as we move forward? And then the week after that, we're going to kick off a four-week series, a practicing series, which if you've been in our church, you know that's something we do three or four times a year, uh, but on the importance of simplicity, of living kind of these, these simple Christ-like lives. And of course, we'll take a break in the middle of that practicing series to celebrate Easter. Um, and this year we're having, I think, three services for Easter. I think one is like a Saturday at 5 p.m. And then we'll have uh, our typical 9 and 10.30 service. So before today, what's on the docket is Daniel chapter 6. So um, if you have a Bible, look with me. If not, we'll put it on the screen for you. And if you don't have a Bible and would like one, let me know. We'll be happy to give you one or purchase you one. Daniel 6, verse 1, I'm reading from the NIV translation. Uh, and as always, the notes are on the YouVersion Bible app if that interests you. 
Holy Spirit, come and please guide our time. Daniel 6, verse 1, it pleased Darius to appoint 120 satraps to rule throughout the kingdom. Um, now, a little background here. Uh, this story actually takes place 60 years after Daniel chapter 1. So Daniel, at this point, is an old man. He's probably somewhere between 75 to 80 years old. And Babylon, the mighty Babylon, at this point in history, has been conquered by the Medo-Persian Empire. Um, now, you can go and read all of this on your own in Daniel chapter chapter 5, but in short, what happens is the Medo-Persian Empire marches right up to the Babylonian walls, and uh, because the king at that time, King Belshazzar, because he's filled with so much pride, uh, he thinks, man, our walls are too big, they're too strong, no enemy could ever penetrate you know, these walls, and so what does he do? He actually decides with this enemy army right on the hills of their land, he throws this party, kind of like to flick his nose at you know, the, the, the enemy army to say, I'm not scared of you. And then he grabs these actual sacred vessels from the temple in Jerusalem and decorates his party as a way of saying, like, my gods are stronger than any other god, including what you think is the one true God. And so as you can imagine, God, right, the one true God is not like this. And so he crashes the party um, with some writing on a wall that freaks out Belshazzar. So he then calls Daniel, says, what does this writing mean? Daniel shows up and says, basically, here's the message. God wants you to know that if you do not repent, king, from your pride, if you do not humble yourself, if you do not turn from your wicked ways and back to God, he's going to destroy your kingdom. However, Belshazzar, because he has a hard heart, because of his pride, he pays no attention to the warning. And so what happens? The Medo-Persians come in, they rout the Babylonians, Belshazzar is slain, and a new king by the name of Darius is put on the throne where he now rules and reigns over the largest empire known to man yet in human history. So that's what happens in Daniel chapter 5. And then because Darius now has this wide, expansive kingdom, we just read in verse 1 that it pleased King Darius to appoint these satraps or think of them as governors over the entire empire with, verse 2, three chief ministers over them, one of whom was Daniel. The satraps were made accountable to them so that the king might not suffer loss. Now, Daniel so distinguished himself among the chief ministers and satraps by his exceptional qualities that the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. This is incredible to me because here is Daniel. Think about this, 75 to 80 years old. And he has not only lived through two kingdoms, but he's lived through at least two to three kings, but he's still at it and he is better than ever. Right? He maybe has lost a step from his old age, but he still has this fire in his belly, this twinkle in his eye. He's still doing this great work. And so this new king takes notice of, uh, of Daniel. He's like, you're amazing, so amazing. I want you to run my whole empire while I just kind of chill or do whatever it is that kings did in their spare time back in those days. And this sounds really amazing. But then look what happens in verse 4. At this, the chief ministers and the satraps tried to find grounds for charges against Daniel in his conduct of government affairs, but they were unable to do so. They could find no corruption in him because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. Finally, these men said, we will never find any base charges against this man, Daniel, unless it has something to do with the law of his God. Now, I absolutely love this 
Because what we have happening here is, is you have these men who go to look for something wrong with Daniel. Kind of like in, in Daniel chapter 3 with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, you have these men who they're jealous of Daniel's prosperity. They're, they're jealous of the fact that he is now over them. And they're like, man, we got to find some way to trip this brother up. But they can't find anything wrong with him. However, watch what happens next. This is actually fantastic. Verse 6. So, These chief ministers and satraps went as a group to the king and said, May King Darius live forever. The royal ministers, prefects, satraps, advisors, and governors have all agreed that the king should issue an edict and enforce the decree that anyone who prays to any god or human being during the next 30 days, except to you, your majesty, you shall throw them into a lion's den. Now, lion's den in this culture, it was a common form of execution. It actually lasted all the way up until second and third generations with the early church, where if you were a follower of Jesus, you would be put into the Colosseum with a bunch of lions and devoured as a form of execution. That's what's going on here. Now your majesty, verse eight, issue the decree to put in writing that it cannot be altered in accordance with the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be repealed. So King Darius is like, this is a great idea, guys. And he put the decree in writing. Verse 10. Now, when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, watch what he did. He went home to his upstairs room where the windows were open towards Jerusalem. Three times a day, he got down on his knees and he prayed, giving thanks to his God, just as he had done before. Isn't this incredible? Daniel catches wind of a death sentence. Either stop praying and worshiping God or die. And so what does Daniel do? He doesn't run away. He just runs right back to God. He doesn't try to manage this thing in his own power, but he looks to a power beyond himself. And so three times a day, the text says he does what he's always been doing. He gets on his knees. He opens a window. He faces Jerusalem, which is where the temple was. And he begins to give thanks to God. He just prays. I want you to just think about that for a moment. I mean, think about if you were Daniel, how easy it would be to give up on this practice of prayer. I mean, I'll be honest, even as a pastor, I look at my life sometimes and I've got all kinds of excuses on on why I can't pray. Too busy or whatever it may be. But here you have this guy, just put yourself in Daniel's place. He has now been living in Babylon for 60 years. 60 years. I mean, if my life goes bad for me for just six days, I'm like, God, where are you? And it's like my my prayer life begins to kind of struggle a little bit. But here's a guy, 60 years, he's living in this foreign land. He's living in exile. Life is hard. He is hundreds of miles from home. He is in a pagan culture, one of the most godless societies the world has ever known. And he's 80 years old. Anybody in here 80? No? Okay, I would imagine... If you were 80, it would be hard to get down on your knees once a day, much less three times a day. But this is what Daniel is doing. And what's amazing to me about this is, guys, getting on your knees and praying is not even a command in Scripture. Did you know that? Like, not once in all of the Bible does God command anybody to get down on their knees and to pray facing towards Jerusalem. And yet, think about this, because Daniel's faith is so important to him. Because his relationship with God is worth dying for, he just stays at this practice of prayer. He refuses to admit it from his life, even if it costs him his life. I don't know about you, but that is so inspiring to me. So even convicting to me. 
I mean, here is Daniel, despite threats, despite his age, despite just everything around him falling apart, he is getting on his knees and he is saying, thank you, God. He's just pouring out his heart to him. And then watch what happens as a result of Daniel's faithfulness. Don't miss this. Verse 11. Then these men went as a group and found Daniel praying and asking God for help. So they went to the king and they spoke to him about his royal decree. Did you not publish a decree during the next 30 days that anyone who prays to any god or human being except to you, your majesty, would be thrown into the lion's den? The king answered, the decree stands in accordance with the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be repealed. Then they said to the king, well, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, your majesty, or to the decree that you put in writing. He still prays three times a day. When the king heard this, he was greatly distressed. He was determined to rescue Daniel and made every effort until sunset to save him. Then the men went as a group to King Darius and said to him, Remember your majesty that that according to the law of the Medes and the Persians that no decree or edict that the king issues can be changed. So the king gave the order and they brought Daniel and they threw him into the lion's den. I just want to say this as a side note. Some of you have heard this thing called the prosperity gospel which says if you will follow Jesus, you'll be healthy and wealthy. Anybody ever heard that before? Like things will go well for you? This is evidence that's not the case. This is evidence that there are times where, yes, you follow God and things will go well for you, but then there are other times where you will follow God and your life will begin to unravel and you will be thrown into a deep, dark pit with lions. Okay? Not necessarily super encouraging, but you need to know that because if you don't hear that, what's going to happen is you're going to go out of here and you're going to try to be faithful to God and then you're not going to get that promotion. You're going to be faithful to God and this person's going to leave you. You're going to be faithful to God and you're going to, you know, financial issues are going to come and you're going to say, God, where are you? And you're going to think something has gone wrong or he's not true to his character. And guys, that's just not the case. We see all throughout scripture, there are times you can be like Daniel, faithful to your God and life will still go bad. Okay, Daniel is not saved from being thrown into the lion's den at this point. He is thrown in with these ferocious lions by the king. And then the king says to Daniel, may your God, whom you serve, continually rescue you. So the king knows that Daniel is a worshiper of the one true God. Daniel's faith, make sure you get this, is not a private-only faith. People in public know where Daniel stands. And that's important. We'll come back to that later. Verse 17. A stone was brought and placed over the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet ring and with the rings of his nobles so that Daniel's situation might not be changed. Some of you are in a situation right now that you think cannot be changed. Maybe it's in your marriage. Maybe it's in a relationship. Maybe it's it's at work. Maybe it's with depression or anxiety, and you think there's no way this situation can be changed. That's the situation Daniel finds himself in. But watch what happens next. Verse 18. Then the king returned to his palace and spent the night without eating and without any entertainment being brought to him, and he could not sleep. At the first light of dawn, the king got up and he hurried into the lion's den, or to the lion's den. And when he came near to the den, he called to Daniel in an anguished voice, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God whom you serve continually been able to rescue you from the lion's? Verse 21, Daniel answered, may the king live forever. Can you imagine hearing that voice come out of this deep, dark pit with these ferocious lions? I'm sure that had to just startle the king. You gotta be kidding me. May the king live forever. My God sent his angel and he shut the mouths of lions. They have not hurt me because I was found innocent in his sight, nor have I ever done anything wrong before you, your majesty. 
the king was overjoyed and he gave orders to lift Daniel out of the den. And when Daniel was lifted from the den, not one wound was found on him because he had trusted his God. At the king's command, the men who had falsely accused Daniel were brought in and thrown into the lion's den along with their wives and children. So obviously this is an incredibly barbaric time in history. And before they reached the floor of the den, the lions overpowered them and crushed their bones. Then King Darius wrote to all the nations and the peoples of every language and all of the earth, May you prosper greatly. I issue a decree that in every part of my kingdom, the people must fear and reverence the God of Daniel, for he is the living God. He endures forever. His kingdom will not be destroyed. His dominion will never end. He rescues and he saves. He performs signs and wonders in heavens and on earth. He has rescued Daniel from the power of the lions. Last verse, verse 28. So Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. It's an incredible story. And the ending of it is huge. Make sure you don't miss this. It's a, it's a, it's a big ending because first off, notice that Darius writes a letter to the entire kingdom saying that everybody in the kingdom must now honor and worship the God of Daniel. So that's a pretty big win. But then it doesn't stop there because if you look at the very last line, look again at verse 28. It reads that during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus, the Persian. But then if you notice, if your Bible's like mine, there's going to be a little end note after Cyrus. You see that in your own Bible? And hopefully you have one with you. But there's an end note after Cyrus. And if you follow the end note down to the bottom of the page, it says it can be translated Darius. That is the reign of Cyrus. Okay, Jared, what in the world are you talking about? Why does this matter at all? Because please hear me. What Bible scholars agree on is this. Cyrus is just another name for Darius. Um, it's, it's not uncommon at all in the ancient Near East for kings to have more than one name. They were kind of like hip-hop artists before hip-hop was around. Um, and therefore, what many, many Bible scholars agree on is that Cyrus is the same as Darius. And the reason this is such a big deal is because in 2 Chronicles chapter 36, which, listen, this is confusing. It's in the middle of your Bible, but it's the last book that was ever written in the Old Testament. Like, historically, it's the last book written, so it should be like at the very end if you're looking at it historically. So if you go to Second Chronicles 36, which is the last book in the Old Testament, the last line that is written in this last book is Second Chronicles chapter 36, verse 23, and here's what it reads. This is what Cyrus, or Darius, king of the Persians, says. The Lord, the God of heavens, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has it. Look at, listen to this. He has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judah. Any of his people among you may go up and may the Lord their God be with them. Okay, Jared, what does that mean? Here's what this means. Because of Daniel's influence, Cyrus who is also known as Darius, not only sends out a letter that says everybody must now honor the God of Daniel, but he also allows these Israelites who have been in exile for 60 years to leave Babylon and to go back home to rebuild their temple and their city from the ground up. I mean, wow. Talk about influence. Not only is Daniel not influenced by Babylon, but he influences Babylon and the world beyond. 
And when you think about influence, don't mistake influence with power. Power is all about position. Power is like this top down kind of, it's really about like coercing people and getting them to do what you want them to do, even if they don't want to do it. That's not what we're seeing here. This is not about power. This is about influence. And influence, it's not about a position. It's about a person. It's not about coercing. It's about convincing. It's about getting people to do what you want them to do, but getting them to do it on their own free will. So when you think about influence, think about what maybe a celebrity has on Instagram in the life of a teenager. Or think about, like in a more positive sense, like the, the influence that Martin Luther King Jr. had on America. He didn't force anybody to change. They were just inspired to change, guys. And listen, as disciples of Jesus, this is what we want to be true about us. This is what we want to go after. We want to be a church. We want to be a people that are able to, to not use power to force people to change, but influence that inspires people to change. And if you hear that and you're like, okay, Joe, that all sounds great, you know, but like, how do we do that? Like practically, like how can you, you as an individual, how can you actually grow in your ability to influence the world around you the way Daniel influenced the world around him? And when we look at the life of Daniel, we see three things. We see excellence, we see character, and we see perseverance. These are three components that mark Daniel's life that if you will adopt them, you will be able to influence others the way that Daniel influenced. And so first off, let me just talk about each of these, and we'll start with excellence, particularly when it comes to your vocation, okay? So think about this. Daniel chapter 6, verse 3. Look back with me. Here's what it reads. Now Daniel so distinguished himself among the chief ministers and the satraps by his exceptional qualities that the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. Exceptional qualities there, literally what it's talking about is Daniel's work ethic. It's talking about his skills. It's talking about his talent, his ability to do a job well. And this is not the first place we see this about Daniel. In Daniel chapter 1 to verse 20, it says, In every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned Daniel and his friends, he found them to be ten times better than all the magicians and chanters in his whole kingdom. And so, guys, listen very carefully. Why did Daniel rise in influence in Babylon? Well, one, it's because God had favor on his life. But two, it's because he was really good at his job. And therefore, like Daniel, if you want to have influence around those that, that are in your life, the same has to be true of you. And so whether it's raising kids or running a business, whatever it is, if you want to influence people around you, you need to actually work hard at becoming good at whatever it is you do. And if you just think I'm like reading too much into Daniel chapter 4, go read the scriptures later, like especially the Proverbs. This is a theme that runs deep throughout the scripture. Um, I think of the line in Ecclesiastes that says, whatever your hand finds you to do, do it with all of your might. In other words, do it to the best of your ability. And so whether you are, you know, you work at a factory or you're a CEO of a Fortune 500 company, which none of you are, right? Because you'd be tithing and we'd know about it. Um, but whatever you do, whatever you do, give it all that you got. Do it to the best of your ability. Cal Newport, who is a, a nonfiction author that I like, I know Adam does as well, he wrote a book called Be So Good They Can't Ignore You, which is just a quote from Steve Martin. And in his book, he points out that when you are really good at whatever you do, you don't have to get paid for it. 
But when you're good at whatever it is you do, people are going to notice and you're going to grow in influence. Secondly, depth in character. Look again at verse 4, Daniel 6 verse 4. At this, the chief ministers and the satraps tried to find grounds for charges against Daniel and his conduct of government affairs, but they were unable to do so. They could find no corruption in him because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. I love that because, you know, some people, they're not corrupt, but they are negligent. They neglect time in the scriptures. They neglect certain like little responsibilities. They're late for everything. They overcommit. They're not organized. They say one thing. They do another. They neglect their health. I mean, they, they neglect all these different areas. And listen, that's just not true of Daniel. Not only was Daniel not corrupt, he was not negligent. And so just imagine for a moment like the FBI or the CIA showing up at your house and they begin to scrutinize every square inch of your life. And they're like looking in your drawers, they're looking under your bed, they're looking everywhere. And imagine after looking and evaluating every aspect of your life, they say, you know what? There is nothing wrong we can find with this man or this woman. I mean, they are impeccable. Like that's what we see with Daniel. He was a man of impeccable character. And to be clear, I want to make sure that you hear this. If you want to have influence, listen, you don't have to be perfect, okay? Um, We say this all the time. Our church is made up of a bunch of imperfect people who are all standing in need of one perfect person together. And that perfect person is not me and certainly not you. It's Jesus. He's the only perfect one in our midst. And so don't hear me saying today, like, if you can't be perfect, you can't have influence. I'm not saying that. But what I am saying is that if you want to have influence, you need to be able to back up excellence in your vocation with godly character. Like, you need to live a life even behind the scenes that is worthy of imitating. Because at the end of the day, guys, and please hear me, your character becomes your destiny. Your character, who you are when nobody else is watching, listen guys, please hear me, it will catch up to you at some point. And so if there is a gap between your public life and your private life, if there is a gap between excellence and what you do and people are watching and the truth about who you actually are, it's just a matter of time before you become this Carl Lentz. And if you guys don't know who Carl Lentz is, he was, um, anybody ever heard the band Hillsong or Hillsong Church? Carl Lentz was like the mega church kind of celebrity pastor at Hillsong in New York. And he had all sorts of influence. Like he was considered Justin Bieber's pastor, Kevin Durant's pastor. He's like a celebrity pastor and massive influence. But then COVID hit last year and because you know, he didn't have people like always watching him preach as he stood on a stage. That wasn't able to feed his ego. Basically what happened is he began to drive an hour away to Domino Park where he kind of built this third world and began to connect these other women and basically convince them that he was a sports agent and therefore end up like getting caught in this affair after six months and it just ruined everything. And you look at a guy like Carl Lentz and you're like, man, how does something like this happen? And it's because it does not matter, listen guys, it does not matter how amazing you are at your job, who you are when you are off stage, who you are when nobody else is watching will eventually catch up to you. 
character is destiny. And this is why in a culture of moral ambiguity where we have thrown off external authority, where we're like, I don't want God's authority. I don't want my mom and dad's authority. I don't want government authority. I don't want church or tradition or any of that stuff over me. In a world where we are now trying to create our own identity, where the best advice we get is just be true to yourself and follow your heart. And if you feel like doing it, just do it. It's in this world that more than ever, godly character stands out. David Brooks, in his masterful book, The Road to Character, points out how America was built not on virtue, but on the pursuit of happiness at all cost. And he says that therefore, because of that, we have basically zero strategy in our culture right now for building lasting character. It's not even on our radar anymore. And so guys, like, to be a man or woman of character, like, I mean, that sticks out like, like a sore thumb in our culture. To be a man or woman who is like Jesus, I mean, that is becoming so incredibly rare in America. And therefore, when you see it, like when you actually see a man who's faithful to his wife over the long haul, when you see someone living with integrity and humility and honesty, when you see someone like put the needs of others above themselves and care for the poor and show up to their appointments on time and, and they're not flaky. And when you see that, when you finally see a Christ-like character, like I'm just telling you, man, like it demands a gospel explanation. Like people are going to look at your life and they're going to ask the question of why are you the way that you are? And so you see excellence in vocation. You see character. Third, you also see perseverance. As we said in verse one, Daniel is now 70 to 80 years old. He's living through the rise and fall of two different empires, at least two to three kings, and he's still at it. He's still committing to what Eugene Peterson called a long obedience in the same direction. And if you want influence, guys, listen, the same must be true of you. And I know we've talked about this before, and I've said it, but this is getting increasingly more difficult because we live in a culture built on speed. We live in this Amazon Prime culture where we want everything right here and right now. It's like if I order something on Amazon Prime and I find out it's going to be here in three days, I'm like, what do you mean three days? It's like, it's like I can't, can't believe three days. It's like we don't want Amazon Prime. We want Amazon now, right? We want everything just right here at our fingertips. And listen, in many ways, like I love that we live in a culture that we can get things quickly. But there are just some things that technology cannot speed up. You realize that? Technology can't speed up your character growth. There's no shortcut to that. It can't speed up deep and healthy, life-giving relationships. There's no easy button for that. It can't make you, there's no shortcut to become excellent at your craft or your job or your vocation. Malcolm Gladwell made famous a study that that it takes 10,000 hours of hard work to become an expert in anything. Think about that, 10,000 hours hours. Most of us look at that and they're like, no, I want to be an expert at it within like two months. And if not, I'm moving on to something else. That's not what we see with Daniel. Daniel was a man of excellence in his vocation. He was a man of character and he was a man of perseverance who would keep on keeping on no matter what was going on around him. And as a result, he was a man of great influence. Now, here's the thing. Before we end, I think it's important for you to know, Daniel was not just a man of influence in general. He didn't care about having influence just for influence sake. He was a man who had wanted a very specific kind of influence for the kingdom of God. And that is why everybody around Daniel knew where he stood with God. Daniel's boss knew where he stood with God. His co-workers knew it. 
His friends knew it. His neighbors knew it. They all knew that Daniel was a worshiper of the one true God. What about you? And what about me? Is the word out on Jared Pickney? Do people around me know that I'm a follower of Jesus? And I know that you know that because I'm your pastor, but do people at the gym I work out with know that I'm a follower of Jesus? And when I say work out, I use that lightly, obviously, as you can tell. Does the guy who just came and and the repairman who came to work on our shower this week know that I'm a follower of Jesus? Do the dads on my son's soccer team know without a shadow of a doubt that guy's a follower of Jesus? What about me? And what about you? Does your boss know it? Your coworkers? That girl you sit next to? Your neighbors? Do the people around you know you as a disciple of Jesus? You know, I feel like our generation... Like, we've just lost our passion for evangelism, haven't we? I mean, even to say that word, it's like, hey, evangelism. You know, it's like, it's not hip, it's not cool, it's kind of old school language. But really, all evangelism means is to preach the gospel, to preach the good news. Or in today's language, to tell people the story of Jesus. And guys, listen, as uncool as this is, it is a central part of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ to open up our mouths and to tell people about who God is and what he has done for us in Christ. And I think there are at least two reasons that we've lost ground in this area. One is because we do live in a post-Christian society where, like we are told, just keep your faith to yourself. Like, what's so weird about our culture is it's like, nobody cares what you believe. Like, you can believe whatever you want. Believe in God, believe in the force, believe in the spaghetti monster. I don't care. Just keep it to yourself. And so we all feel this pressure, like this emotional and this social pressure to just go to church, shut up, and kind of keep your faith to yourself. Right? Don't we? I do. Anybody else feel that? Thank you, Robert. Me and you, brother. It's kind of lonely up here sometimes, but not when you're here, brother. Thank you. That's right. And Jesus is here. Thank you, Jesus. That's true. I need to be reminded of that. Um, Yeah, so we live in this post-Christian movement. That's one of the reasons we've lost ground when it comes to evangelism. Another reason I think we've lost ground in this is because just evangelism done bad. Like we've all had those kind of bad experiences. Um, anybody remember back in the nineties, heaven's gates, hell's flames. Anybody remember that? Yeah. We would literally open up a church building and we would like make this, it was almost like a church haunted house type thing. Like it was a big, big drama where we would literally try to scare the hell out of you. It's really what we were going for. And what's crazy is somehow God used that and some people came to faith, like legitimately came to faith in that in the 90s. How many of you remember door-to-door evangelism? Anybody remember that? So I remember I grew up in the church and my dad was a pastor. And if you used to leave a connect card, uh, they don't call them connect cards because, uh, you know, we're way hipper now. So we call them connect cards. But I think they're just like visitor cards or whatever. But you fill out your information and then my dad and the deacons would have church visitation day. And every Saturday they would go out and you'd just be at your house hanging out and all of a sudden you'd get, and you'd go and there, you know, even if you're just like this woman, you know, living by yourself, here's like this, like four men, you know, the pastor of the deacons and you open the door and you're, they're like, Hey, can we talk to you about Jesus? And you're like, sure, come on in. And then you make them coffee and talk about Jesus. I've had happen. Can you imagine that happening in our culture today? This doesn't happen. I remember even in the early two thousands, I used to teach this thing called evangelism explosion, um, 
And we would literally like, I guess it was like three times a year. We'd have three different, you know, classes go through 10 to 15 people. I would teach people how to evangelize. And then we would go ambush people like at, like, for example, the Hayes parking lot. So like a little lady be pushing her like, you know, cart out. We'd like jump out and be like, hey, you know, and then like talk to her about the gospel and go through our whole presentation. There was nowhere for her to go. We would do that kind of stuff, man. And, and if it wasn't like door to door evangelism or like ambushing people in a parking lot, we had those cheesy tracks. Anybody remember those tracks? Back in the day, I know Adam remembers it because we used to do little voiceovers while my dad was preaching and like, you know, like wouldn't pay attention to what he was saying. It was a lot of fun actually. And, uh, I don't recommend it that you do here, but it was good for us back in the day. And so, but if you were a waiter or a waitress, you definitely remember these because you would wait on the table, you know, you would go to get the, you know, the dishes off and you would find what you think is a hundred dollar bill and you'd be like, yes. And then you would turn it over and it'd be like, if you were to die tonight, you're like, oh God, like it was awful. Right? And, and so listen, I get it. Like we've all been turned off by evangelism done bad, but we gotta be very careful not to throw the baby out with the bathwater to where we no longer preach the gospel at all. I was reading an article in Christianity Today recently and the girl who was writing the article had this to say. We'll throw it on the screen for you. As we have established ourselves firmly in the 21st century, Tent revivals and traveling evangelists have become things of the past, taught in history classes or portrayed in movies. Evangelism is often presented as this old school, out of style idea with little value or relevance in our fast paced world. The reality is that social media platforms and trendy wall plaques are inundated with quotes preaching the idea of easy evangelism. If we just live good enough lives and we forgo conversations entirely, people will almost magically come to know Jesus through our good actions and selfless character. This style of evangelism is becoming more and more prevalent in a culture often looking for the fast track and a simple fix. But if we believe God has called us to preach the gospel to all nations and to all people, we must call the next generation back to a commitment to evangelism. Amen. That's worthy of clapping for, sister. I think of that fame, that uh, kind of infamous misquote from St. Francis that we like to throw out. Go and preach the gospel and when necessary, use words. That sounds so cool, don't it? It sounds so 2021, but it's so dumb. Because guys, literally the gospel means good news. To say go preach the gospel and use words when necessary is like, hey, go tell someone the daily news and use words if necessary. You'd be like, what are you talking about? The gospel is not just something that we demonstrate with our lives. It's something we proclaim with our mouths. We share good news. And I know this is scary when it comes to living in a Babylonian culture like we live in where we're going to be rejected or made fun of or whatever else can happen. But guys, this really is what it means to be faithful and fruitful as a disciple of Jesus. And I know we all hate the idea of proselytizing, but you need to understand this, guys. Everybody out there is proselytizing. Everybody out there, whether you realize or not, is sharing the good news of something, whether it's the good news of Jesus or the good news of this show they watched on Netflix or this good news of low gas prices over here or this sale over there, or the good news of, oh, we just won this tournament. Or the, I mean, just the list goes on and on. And so please hear me. We're done today. If you take this message seriously and you're like, okay, you know what? I'm going to go out and I'm going to preach the gospel this week. The only difference between you and everybody else is you're just sharing the best news on the planet. That's the only difference. You are sharing news that every single person in our city desperately needs to hear. They just don't know it because their eyes are blind to it. And it is our job to go and to share with them what we know is true because God has opened our hearts to the reality of it.
Everybody you meet is longing for this kind of news. They're longing for it. They don't know they're longing for it, but they are hungering and they are thirsting for God. I think of that quote from G.K. Chesterton that said, Every time a man knocks on the door of a brothel, he is searching for God. That is so true, guys. Every time someone is looking at pornography, every time they pop a pill, every time they binge on that show or they give themselves to hours and hours and hours, just countless hours of work and climbing the corporate ladder and a ladder and, and building that bigger bank account or whatever it may be, I'm telling you, they are looking for God. They don't know it. They think they're just hungry and thirsting for more money or greater success or more sex, but they are longing for ultimately a relationship with God. Ecclesiastes 3.11 It's one of my favorite verses in the Bible. It says that when God created us, he put eternity in our hearts. Eternity. What that means is that that, that we have within us a desire for something that cannot be taken away from us, that cannot break, that cannot fade away. And the only one who fits that bill is God himself. You try to fit anything into that hole other than God, and you're never going to be satisfied. That is why for some of you in here right now, it's like you finally did get that job that you're like, man, if I could just get this, then I'll be happy. But it felt like you were hitting a ceiling. Like, I didn't do it. Man, if I could just make more money, then I know, finally, I'll be happy. But you got there, and it's like, ah, man, it's just, if I could just get married, if I could just have kids, if I could just, I mean, you fill in the blank, then I know I'll be satisfied. But it's like you just keep hitting the ceiling, and you're like, why in the world? It's just like it feels like there's something beyond this that I've got to get to, and there is something beyond it. It's God himself. You'll never find rest until you rest in him, Augustine said. And so today, man, the call is this. It's to realize that because of your sin, you've been separated from God. But because of Jesus, you can have a relationship with him, no matter who you are or what you have done or what you have not done, even if you don't have impeccable character, which none of us probably do. But you can have a relationship with the God of the universe because here's what happened. Jesus Christ came and lived a perfect, sinless life. You could never live and I could never live. And then he was thrown into the lion's den for you and me. But unlike Daniel, he was not delivered. He was devoured by the lion of sin, death, and hell. But then he came out three days later better than ever. And now if you trust in this gospel, in Jesus Christ, you can trust and you can know firmly that not only can you be forgiven of your sins and freed from the power of sin, but you can find true fulfillment in Christ himself. Thank you, Lord. And so I just want to ask you today, I know you believe it back there, but does anybody else believe that? And if you don't believe it, you're welcome here. You really are. But I just want you to know, man, that breaks my heart. To know that there are some of you in here today who just, man, you're so religious and you don't want to go to hell and you're trying to raise your kids right. And I get it, but man, you're empty. And I'm telling you, Jesus is the answer. And so today, if you've never surrendered your life to him, I hope that you do that today. Um, in just a moment, I'll lead you in a prayer that will help you do just surrender your heart over to him. For those of you who have trusted in Christ, in just a moment we're going to partake of communion. You have this um, cup of juice and the little bread on top. The bread represents the perfect life of Christ. And here's what I want you to think about, guys. Listen carefully. Listen carefully. Before you take communion, meditate on this reality. Meditate. Think about, think about your excellence in vocation. Have I truly given myself to be an excellent in my vocation for the glory of God? Have I been a person of impeccable character? 
Am I the same person in public that I am in private? Um, am I persevering? Am I choosing to do the right thing over an extended period of time, even when everyone else is not? Think about, have I taken time to preach the gospel? Have I shared the gospel this past week with anybody? And listen, allow yourself to feel the weight of that for a moment. Because I'm guessing if you're anything like me, nobody has been 100% in all those areas. And that's why when you take that piece of bread, what Jesus says is this represents his life, his perfect sinless life on our behalf. It's a reminder that you don't have to be perfect because he was perfect. And then as you take the juice, it's a reminder that, yeah, you sinned and I have sinned, but Jesus came and shed his blood for the forgiveness of sins. And now there is no condemnation for those of you who are in Christ. So take communion, be reminded of that gospel reality, then let that propel you forward to evangelism and influence for his sake. For others in here, if you're not a Christian, if you've never trusted in Jesus, rather than receiving communion, I just want to take a moment to lead you in a prayer. And so I want to invite the band to to come forward. Everybody else, just close your eyes, bow your head for a moment. We're almost done. And and I told this to the first service. I want to say to this one as well. You know, this, this sermon might not have hit you where you are today. Maybe you didn't see it do any sort of work in your heart. But God may very well be doing something very significant in the heart of the person right next to you. And so just be careful not to distract them in this moment. Even if this message did not sit with you, pray for those around you. And here's what I was going to say. If you're here right now and you do not know Jesus as your salvation and your satisfaction, your forgiveness and your fulfillment, I'm going to encourage you in your heart to pray this prayer. If there's something pricked in you right now that says, man, I want to know God that way. And just pray this in your heart. You don't have to pray it out loud. God, I recognize that I am a sinner. I know that I was made for you. I was made for so much more than just the things I see in this world. And I recognize that I've been trying to fill the gap of eternity with stuff that just is not doing it for me. And I'm tired and I'm weary and I'm lonely and I need you. Jesus, I repent of my sins. I turn from these things that I've been trusting in to give me what only you can give me. And I trust that you came, Jesus. You came to this world to pursue sinners like me, to live a perfect life I could never live, to die a death I deserve to die on the cross. And you rose from the dead and now you send me your Holy Spirit to come and live inside of me. And so send me your spirit. Save me from my sins. And it's in Christ's name that I do pray and ask these things. Amen. If you just prayed that prayer, come and talk to Adam. Talk with myself. Message me. Talk with someone you come with. We'd love to help you with the next steps. Let me pray for each of us one more time before we take communion. And then you can stand when you're ready and we'll sing one final song. Father, as we now enter into a time of communion, I pray this would not just be an empty ritual. Maybe there are some of us in here that we believe the gospel is true news, but it is no longer good news. And I pray that as we take this and embody it, that once again, afresh, you will fill us with the great hope and the joy and the life and the peace and the promise that we have all wrapped up in yourself, Jesus. And it's in your name I pray and ask this. Amen.